Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today I'm very pleased to bring back onto the podcast investigative journalist and writer Whitney Webb. But before we get to our interview with Whitney, I just wanted to mention at the top of this podcast that if you become a Patreon subscriber of ours for as little as $5 a month, you get access to one extra bonus episode per month that will be released for patrons only. So please consider doing that and uh, supporting us that way. And thank you if you are already a Patreon subscriber. Your support is invaluable and we cannot thank you enough. Whitney has a new three-part series where at the time of recording this podcast, she has just released the third part of the series called Head of the Hydra, The Rise of Robert Cadlick. The overall subject matter of the three-part series is the 2001 anthrax attacks and the idea of a sort of a pandemic response racket, essentially a conspiracy within the government to fearmonger that not only the public, but also policymakers into creating these unnecessary positions that ultimately didn't amount to stopping anything or preventing or helping anything with this COVID-19 pandemic. Now, what I've just described is merely the tip of the iceberg, the surface level narrative that you'll get out of reading Whitney's newest piece. But what we also need to realize is that these characters that she exposes, specifically Robert Cadlick, seems to have an eerie role in not only originating a lot of the original anthrax bioterrorism fears in the early 90s, but carrying across that role into government all the way into the Trump administration and throughout the private sector, including companies and entities that have bizarre and suspicious connections to the anthrax attacks themselves. Now, as someone who's been personally researching the anthrax attacks for almost 10 years now, I'm honestly thrilled that someone else like Whitney has decided to get involved in this subject and dive deeper, frankly, than anyone has since maybe Graham McQueen in his book, The 2001 Anthrax Deception. Now, I have to give myself a little bit of credit also for doing a lot of original research on anthrax, but I think what Whitney's doing is definitely taking it a step further and has also validated some loose threads in my own research, um, specifically some of the things told to me by Matt DeHart, which you may remember from a previous Media Roots radio episode. So without further ado, here's Whitney Webb. It's really great to have you on the podcast again, Whitney. I'm really excited to have you on. I just wanted to give your new podcast, Unlimited Hangout, a shout out at the very top of this podcast. Um, not just because I was your first guest, <laughs> uh, but because I'm really excited that you finally have your own podcast that's completely your own. This is just purely you. You can editorialize however you want. Um, I'm assuming so. I don't think Last American Vagabond yeah. has any editorial control no. over this podcast. This is totally <laughs> your thing. And just so people know, you've also you also are now writing for the website Last American Vagabond, and you've been putting out this amazing. Uh, series. So yeah, I just want to welcome you to the podcast and thanks for coming on again, Whitney. Hey, thanks for the invite. My pleasure to be back. So you're still in the middle of writing this amazing in-depth series about a group of, let's just say, shady characters, um, mostly Americans in government 
who in some way aim to profit off of pandemic situations, um, the fear of biowarfare, uh, or bioterror, should I say. But these people also have a very scary level of prescience, <laughs> or arguably foreknowledge of impending biological events. And some of these people have been involved since the very sketchiest you know, things that I first started researching, like the 2001 anthrax attacks, or how we got into the Iraq war, or even before that in the 90s, um, some of these bizarre sort of prescient biowarfare warnings during the Clinton era. So am I describing your series in general correctly, or is there something else that you want people to know about this series that is, uh, that's important? Well, um, I think that's a pretty good summary, but of course it's a really complex, um, group and, and agenda that I'm trying to piece out, um, in the series. Um, if it helps to explain it a little bit by explaining why I started writing it, which has to do with the fact that, um, some of the simulations that preceded coronavirus and seemed, uh, prescient, right? Um, of what would just follow a few months later, uh, cramps and contagion and event 201. Uh, the moderator and one of the main sponsors of event 201 was a group called the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, headed by a guy named Thomas Inglesby. And, um, Crimson Contagion was he is headed by the uh, HHS Assistant Sec Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, whose name is Robert Cadlick. And both of those individuals, as well as other players and both of these simulations, have ties to this exercise that took place in June 2001 that was also very prescient of the 2001 anthrax attacks. Right. So basically what I'm showing is the continuity between the people that were involved in Dark Winter and a lot of shady things that happened before and after those attacks, as well as guiding um, the legislation and, and policy related to biodefense um, and pandemic preparedness and other things that followed, um, you know, that, that was basically rushed into law after numerous different events that followed the anthrax attacks, including Hurricane Katrina, bird flu, swine flu. It's all the same people over the past uh, several decades that have been guiding this policy along. And now a lot of those people guiding those policies uh, ended up doing these, these prescient simulations once again uh, before uh, the coronavirus pandemic. What a surprise. Um, it's wonderful the way <laughs> that you broke that down. Cause I love, I love your work, Whitney, because um, you're not afraid to touch a lot of third rail subjects that other journalists are. Some people might call some of the subjects, you know, conspiracy related. Epstein, for example, even though that's a very real life conspiracy, it's not a conspiracy theory. But you, what you just said is like a very nuanced and it's not something you can easily encapsulate in a hashtag. And I don't know how you feel about this right. at all. So don't, I don't want you to, I don't want to put you in a position where you're having to slam someone else's work. So stay, you know, if you don't want to say anything, that's fine. But what I love about your work is that in contrast to things like this viral film Plandemic that's going around, what you're doing is is just a, a, a extremely detailed, research-oriented deep dive and breakdown. And you're not, it doesn't appear to be operating on any sort of confirmation bias. You're not trying to absolve Trump. You're not trying to go after Trump. You're not only trying to go after the Obama era. You know, it's just a broad spectrum of how deep this all really goes. And I think that's what's what that's the kind of work we need to be seeing more of right now. So I just right. I really appreciate that. And you and you really can't turn your series into like 
a talking point. You know, like I was just thinking of ways to easily, you know, synopsize this, but you really have to break it all down. I mean, that's what's, and I think that's what really good work is all about. It's, it's not these easily encapsulated, you know, talking points. If there was a way to encapsulate it easily, it would be that the corruption (laughs) that has led to this current situation is 100% bipartisan. 100%. Exactly. Yeah. From Bush Sr., it involves people under the Clinton administration, George W. Bush, Obama, and now Trump. It doesn't matter what which of the two parties, you know, are in power or who, you know, is appointed head of HHS or any of that stuff. It's the same agenda unfolding, um, you know, Democratic and Republican administrations alike. Exactly. And that's and just jumping ahead a little bit, I'm gonna we're gonna go into this in more detail, but that's what I think is so great about you unearthing a character like Robert Cadlick, who I don't even think most people have even heard of. There's but a reason that for that, I think, now. And, <laughs> and and he's one of these he's a perfect example of what you're talking about. He doesn't appear to be a partisan character necessarily, even though he has some kind of Clinton loyalism to a certain extent. He's gone through all these different administrations, and that's what's so interesting about, you know, someone like him. But Let's let's go back a little bit to the beginning of your series. The first entry um, in your series dives really deep into this 2001 exercise, Operation Dark Winter, conducted during the Bush administration, about an imaginary terrorist release of smallpox, followed by the same terrorist group threatening a follow-up anthrax attack, which w- we discussed on your podcast. Doesn't even really make logical sense because. Smallpox is 30% lethal. Why would you even need to add anthrax on top of that? But why did you decide to start with Operation Dark Winter as sort of the anchor point for the rest of your series? Well, um, as I explained a little bit earlier, um, these pandemic simulations last year had ties to um, Dark Winter. So I thought it would be a logical place to start just for that reason, um, because it it sort of was an easy line to draw from the present to the past um, in investigating this whole mess. Um, And uh, because it also shows how dangerous these people are, I think, when you take a look at, at Dark Winter, who was involved... Um, what they discussed, uh, what happened on between 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, what these people that were at Dark Winter were doing um, in that very crucial period of time, how they reacted to the attacks and how they were involved with the investigation. Um, I think it paints a picture of how these people operate in a case study that, you know, um, is is somewhat remembered like the anthrax attacks, but it's just... um, you know, shady for a number of reasons. And a lot of people, you know, that look at the anthrax attacks um, know that the government obviously uh, lied about major aspects of it, whether it was the initial push to blame Saddam Hussein for those attacks or, you know, criticism over um, the FBI, um, you know, prosecution of Bruce Ivins um, or any of this other stuff that went on uh, afterwards. So that's, that's basically in a nutshell why I decided to start there. And and Sam Husseini, um, who I'm glad is a fan of your work, uh, made a good point recently, and I watched an interview with him where he said that the situation of COVID-19 and the fear generated by it and how people are expected to behave is a really unique situation. But if you really think about it, there, there's really only one other comparable situation, and it sort of is what similar to what we experienced during the anthrax attacks. We were already so amped up on fear after 9-11, this idea that terror would continue. And then 
you know, not knowing how long the anthrax attacks were going to last, not knowing how many people were going to die, not knowing if it was safe to even get your mail. Um, so, but, you know, but bioweapon or sort of the inside job theories aside, this alone is a deeply, is deeply troubling to realize because the fear mongering behind anthrax generated, you know, most of the fuel for the Patriot Act, the Iraq war, and arguably right. the continuing justification for the war on terror in general. So, I mean, just the civil liberties implications of this are absolutely horrifying. So I guess just before we move on to the rest of what your series is about, like just on a personal level, and how how are you feeling about the civil liberties implications of this moving forward or, or even just right now? I mean, I know you're not in the United States. We're talking about characters in the United States, but this is a global thing. So, well, um. Looking at Dark Winter and the fact that there's continuity between that and what we're seeing now, Dark Winter, um, in, in its response to smallpox and these acts of, of terrorism, talks about um, invoking martial law, invoking the Insurrection Act, uh, shutting down the internet, ramping up internet censorship, and that's back in 2001, right? Um, there's yeah. even a news clip where people are trying to flee the epicenter of the of the um, smallpox outbreak, which is in Oklahoma. They're trying to pass civilians passing over the border from Oklahoma to Texas. And in the newscast, um, the the fake newscaster is talking about these people being shot at, shot at by the National Guard for trying to you know cross the border over into another state. Um, it's just very hellish, honestly. But a lot of these. Um, ideas we've seen sort of resurrected as coronavirus has taken place and some of those same scenarios were repeated in some of these simulations that took place place last year right um so it, it's very disconcerting in terms of you know civil liberties as it's playing out right now in the u.s there is a huge and largely successful push um, to increase mass surveillance and the powers of the Department of Justice headed by Don, uh, William Barr. Um, this includes uh, Barr's call for emergency powers to indefinitely detain Americans without trial um, and, and a lot of other shady stuff. He was recently given uh, far-reaching surveillance powers over um, Americans' internet history, something that he was trying to get last year. Both of these things, by the way, indefinite detention and greater surveillance powers, Barr was pushing for the same stuff last fall as a way to, quote-unquote, prevent mass shootings before they happen, right? Sort of the pre-crime aspect. And now he's saying he needs uh, those same things for coronavirus. So in my opinion, that's a policy that Barr and people around him want to implement. And what they're doing is that they're moving the justification to whatever Americans are most afraid of. So last year, after that spate of mass shootings, Americans were most afraid of more mass shootings. Now Americans are most afraid of coronavirus. So he's just, you know, in my opinion, trying to see which one will stick. Fascinating. I, I barely heard anything about that. And I, I wish more people were focused on that kind of stuff. Let's go into this character. The third part of your series uh, f mainly focuses on, his name is Robert Cadlick. Um, I'm just going to feign some ignorance here. Why should people be concerned about him? And who is he? Like where, explain, explain sort of his rise and give us a little overview of him. Okay, so um, the rise will take more time, but essentially um, why he's important right now is that this is the man that is leading HHS's entire coronavirus response due to existing legislation when there is a national health emergency declared like a pandemic 
HHS is the lead agency. Therefore, him being in charge of coronavirus response puts him in charge of the lead agency in charge of coronavirus response for the whole country. Right. Is he a holdover from the previous administration or was he appointed? How did, how did he get this position? He was nominated uh, when Trump came to office um, to become Asper. And he was not uh, in government during the Obama administration. Got it. He okay, was instead sorry. in the Continue. private sector doing consulting work for companies tied uh, contract intelligence and military contractors and also pharmaceutical companies. Um, and he was also um, very involved with Richard Burr, who resigned today. Um, from the Senate Intelligence Committee, was very involved with him, was a staff director in Burr's Senate Intelligence Office. I mean, he's been very involved with intelligence-linked groups for a long time, but that's, you know, just in the recent history, essentially. Um, but, uh, yeah, so as I laid out, he is has a very crucial role in determining what the U.S. government does with respect to coronavirus response. And since he's been at HHS, has worked very hard to bring HHS in closer coordination with groups like DARPA, the Pentagon's research arm, which is involved in a lot of um, very disconcerting technologies, including quote-unquote healthcare technologies that could uh, have very different uses from healthcare, um, which is definitely something that I have been writing about lately and I find concerning. But also HHS is in charge of directing the money um, that comes from this organization within HHS called BARDA, which is basically used to develop and research new uh, cures for health crises, including coronavirus, obviously. So, um, of course, that research and development is not conducted by the government, but by the private sector, by big pharmaceutical companies, um, big pharma, essentially. So basically, Cadillac has the power over which pharma pharmaceuticals company companies uh, win those millions uh, earmarked for uh, the development and research of coronavirus cures and treatments. His name um, recently came up in a news story. And I don't know if this was a coincidence because I remember you already writing, you were already planning on writing about him and maybe his name even came up in part one of your series. I can't remember. Oh, it did. It did. And okay. part two. So was this just coincidental that, that he appeared in the news uh, based on a whistleblower complaint? And I, and I'm and tell me which news story this was originally reported in that um, resulted in a group of Senate Democrats uh, saying he had a conflict of interest in his COVID nineteen preparedness. Okay, so before the whistleblower complaint, um, and early last April, I published part two of my series, which was about a company called Bioport or Emergent Bio Solutions, and I talked about how part three of the series would be about Robert Cadlick and Emergent Bio Solutions and Dark Winter, which it is. And not long after that, the Washington Post uh, published a story that was basically, um, um, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but it was essentially a lot of my research on Cadillac and Emergent Biosolutions and his ties to the no shit. of Emergent Biosolutions, a guy named Fuad El Hebri. How come I didn't know this already? I didn't realize that, I mean, I know that The Intercept... <laughs> We'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah. Recently might have lifted <laughs> yeah. some of your research, but I had I, I had no awareness of this. Please tell me more. Um, I don't know you. how much, how in depth I want to go, but there was some uh, weird stuff that happened at the time. And then this Washington Post story came out. Um, so Raul Diego, who's co-writing this uh, series with me, who is now writing for Mint Press News, is an absolutely excellent, by the way. Um, he and I... Um, suspect that something may have happened because essentially what the Washington Post article did is that it 
uh, suggested that the only potential conflict of interest that Robert Cadlick had was this past, uh, these past ties to this Fuad Al-Hebri character and his consulting work for Emergent Biosolutions. Um, yeah. But they uh, took him at his word that he was only involved in founding a company called East West Protection with Fuad Al-Hebri, when in fact there is evidence, which I, which I include in my report, that's a, a readily available showing that he was managing director from its founding until at least 2015. So the fact that the Washington Post declined to um, put that in, I thought was rather odd. Um, and of course, if you look at my article compared to the Washington Post article, it's, it's pretty clear that they wanted the focus to be on the single um, conflict of interest and not on his ties to, you know, intelligence, military intelligence, um, some of these big bioterror alarmist characters that we'll get into here later, um, other competing pharmaceutical companies, because... Um, the whistleblower complaint as well is by the, the head of this BARDA group, who's the deputy, uh, basically Robert Cadlick's deputy. And they have ties to what I would argue are opposing factions of this sort of like biodefense, big pharma mafia, um, and um, are essentially aligned with different monetary interests. And so uh, that's why I think it's uh, interesting that Bright in his testimony today to Congress um basically um, criticized the heck out of Cadillac and said he was doing everything wrong and that the money at BARDA needs to be spent on other things and go to other groups and other companies. Um, which is interesting because Bright is um, tied in to this group called PATH, which has a lot of connections to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the World Health Organization um, and his company Novavax that he used to uh, he used to work at Novavax, which is a vaccine company that recently got the largest grant ever from this group called CEPI, which is also backed by Gates and um, and the UN. Whereas CAD, like a lot of his industry ties, are a different faction not tied into Gates and the World Health Organization, like this Emergent Biosolutions Group, uh, Bavarian Nordic, uh, Eleusis Therapeutics, uh, uh, several other um, large pharmaceutical companies, and as well as organizations like um, like DARPA and DHS, who's sort of closer to that orbit of things, um, which are largely within the, the U.S. Uh, sphere of influence, as opposed to, you know, like the U.N. sphere of influence and, and Gates and stuff, right? So I think that explains in part why we're seeing this this war essentially between Cadlick and um and his his former deputy right now in terms of uh the, the whistleblowing supposed whistleblowing that's going on i think it's essentially um and the fact that he's being called a whistleblower by mainstream media uh generally you know uh tells me based on you know how it that's that term has been playing out over the past few years that it's someone <laughs> that, that has you know friends in government and isn't an actual whistleblower because they usually send those just straight to prison right of course no it's very fascinating i mean that's wow well i mean so in theory you could have set off a, a chain of events here um it's, 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 hey, maybe it, i don't want to take credit uh, for I, that, i'm not though. i'm not trying to put words <laughs> in your mouth i'm just uh yeah no i mean your work is so in depth. I don't think that's what people, if, if people haven't read your stuff before, they may not understand how many stones you unturn in just a single article. I mean, you, you find so many new little puzzle pieces in every article you write that, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. But I mean, go into a little bit more detail onto like what, what was exactly this conflict of interest and, and this idea that he was hoarding that all this power that he somehow accumulated all this power to have control over all these vaccines. I don't know if I'm misconstruing that, but 
Well, this is focusing on a, on a part l- much later on in the timeline. And you had asked me earlier about his, his rise to prominence where this Fuad al-Hibri character and Emergent Biosolutions fit into that. Um, but basically what he didn't disclose, it's something when he joined, as I mentioned earlier, he was working for se- former or, or sorry, for um, Senator Richard Burr. Um, when he was nominated uh, to do or, or when he joined that, he did disclose his ties to Fuad al-Hibri and this, this company, Emergent Biosolutions. But he did not include that when he was nominated by Trump to head um, this assistant secretary position at HHS. Right. So the Got fact it. that he didn't disclose it this time is now being, um, you know, they're, they're saying that this is a potential conflict of interest that he failed to disclose on his paperwork. And so this congressional, this group of senators, Democratic senators, are asking that he uh, disclose all of his other uh, potential conflicts of interest, many of which the Washington Post did not cover, but are contained within my article. But I think they are conflicts of interest that perhaps uh, Congress will not pursue, right, since they just, you know, voted to give a bunch of surveillance powers to William Barr, among other things. So, you know, um, we'll see. Yeah, it might be interesting to just keep um, abreast of what they're actually talking about and look at, and to see if they question him more, see what comes up. Maybe some other points from your articles will will enter the record inexplicably. Hey, maybe or or inexplicably <laughs> appear in mainstream media reports. Again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, in a in a couple of days, we'll see. <laughs> well, I guess on that point, why don't we just go into this briefly before we go into his rise and more of his past and how he got here? What the intercept is also now talking about Robert Cadlick and you know they're sort of acting like they have this scoop but yet their article appears very very similar to your article um or your series so what well, I mean oh I'm sorry not not this specific series and another series you wrote I mean another piece you wrote right am I am I getting that right. wrong so tell yeah. us well, tell us a little bit about how that happened started because uh, mm-hmm. this is all well, related the, the Sort of, yeah. Well, the the Intercept lately also has started after the Washington Post published this, started to publish more about Robert Cadlick relative to other sites, which I thought was interesting. Um, but no, um, what happened is that there was an article that I wrote called Techno Tyranny, which was about a uh, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, and um, I went through. Uh, EPIC, the Electronic uh, Privacy Information Center, they did a, a, a FOA request from this National Security Commission and got like a whole bunch of documents. So I went through um, all of them and I found this presentation um, that's talking about um, technological uh, competition with China with respect to AI and how the, the U.S. Uh, economy and society had to be, you know, remade essentially in order to provoke the widespread adoption of AI driven technologies that Americans generally distrust. Because if we don't do that, according to this commission, we will fall behind China in terms of technological advantage. Therefore, we have to adopt these systems far beyond, uh, far behind, uh, far beyond how China has adopted them to the extent that they've been adopted in China. And so this, um, uh, a few, and I did a report on that. I, I went on the Tim Dillon show, um, which had like um, 150,000 views or something. And then I also went on Jimmy Dore, which had a similar number of views. So like over 300,000 views on YouTube talking about this document. Um, and then it appears um, like a week or two later in The Intercept uh, by Naomi Klein, and, you know, she said she got it from Epic, but I also have, um, you know, 
three intercept writers that follow me on Twitter and uh, frequently get in uh, testy exchanges with Glenn Greenwald. So um, I don't know. I mean, I am a little, uh, I think it's odd, especially considering what happened with the Washington Post, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, journalists are competitive and, you know, if they don't want to acknowledge someone's work, but still find the story interesting that they'll do that. And I think that's a pretty common, common practice. Um, but I, I mean, I think it's great that, uh, to think that this, that these, uh, original pieces you wrote, you know, just about Cadillac, just going back to him had the, you know, could have had these ripple effects. So, um, so yeah, keep up the great work is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Thanks. So go, go Will back, <laughs> go back to him. How, where, what, how, what was like one of his most, you know, prominent first gigs and, and sort of like take us through his trajectory because i mean he even was a weapons inspector which is kind of fascinating yeah that i mean that was in 1994 yeah so this whole part of robert cadlick's career begins at the beginning of the first gulf war in the early 90s he was the biological warfare assistant to the head of jsoc which is like the joint special operations command and so he was hiding uh advising the head of special forces at the time a guy named major general wayne downing and um, what he was involved with there were preparations for what people at the Pentagon expected at the time was going to be the use of anthrax um, in uh, when, when U.S. troops would go to Iraq. They were afraid that soldiers, um, U.S. soldiers would be targeted with anthrax. And their reasoning for this is very disturbing. Um, I don't include this in the article. So this is a, you know, media roots bonus. <laughs> um, oh. oh, sweet. Yeah, so special forces, you know, the same guy that um, Cadillac is advising, uh, order special forces to go and kidnap a bunch of Iraqi soldiers and they forcibly take blood samples from them. And they determine from these blood samples that they have immunity to anthrax. But actually in this part of the world, cutaneous anthrax infections are relatively common um, because they happen in other places too where there's a lot of interaction between, you know, uh, with livestock, like with sheep and and wool and stuff like that. That's um, how anthrax naturally occurs. So it could have just been from this, right? But then this information was brought to a guy named William C. Patrick III, who we'll be talking a lot about today. And um, he, this guy Patrick, said that this was proof that they had uh, given, you know, of anthrax vaccine um, or had been, you know, intentionally developing immunity to anthrax because they planned to use anthrax Iraq planned to use anthrax as a biological weapon if the U.S. invaded. Okay. Wow. Wait, so William Patrick at the time, tell just tell us really quickly what position he held at the time. Well, he was a consultant. He used to work for Fort Detrick. He um, was very involved okay. in developing the U.S.'s uh uh, process for weaponizing anthrax back when there was an official um, offensive bioweapons program at Fort Detrick. He holds five classified patents regarding the weaponization of anthrax, five different methods to weaponize anthrax, um, this guy. And he openly says that after the program was shut down officially anyway, 
in the late 60s that he reluctantly began work, uh, reluctantly, yeah, began working on doing, you know, biodefense <laughs> research at Fort Detrick. And he, he openly says, I mean, this is in articles about him in the New York Times. He openly says that it's much faster and like, uh, more, you know, he, he likes it better when he's making weapons because it doesn't take as long and you like, you, you get something faster, whereas developing a vaccine takes like way longer and he thought it was much more boring, which is um, interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah, when you consider um, other things he would get into uh, later on here. Um, yeah, so anyway, he was advising the Pentagon, which by the way, at this time, the Pentagon is headed by Dick Cheney, who had become vice president under Bush, right? So Dick Cheney's Secretary of Defense at this time, and um, Patrick um, not only advises the Special uh, Forces Commando who kidnapped these Iraqi soldiers that Cadillac's working with, but advises, you know, Dick Cheney that the U.S. military has to vaccinate tens of thousands of uh, troops with the anthrax vaccine, which at the time was very controversial and still controversial today. And Cadillac uh, actually ended up personally injecting about 800 of those people. With the anthrax vaccine. Stop for a second there. What kind of person? I mean, what was his, was he a medical doctor? Did he go through medical school? Like, why would he want to do that? He's a flight surgeon. Okay. So, but what was, was this just a PR stunt at the time? Or was he actually like in some kind of capacity that that would have made sense? Like, I'm just a little confused by that. He's technically an Air Force flight surgeon for uh, a surgeon or physician, but at the time he was special assistant for chemical and biological warfare, warfare to JSOC. So it really didn't make sense unless it was, a, I mean, it does seem like kind of some PR stunt. Like, was it, I mean. It's possible. I, in my mind, I'm thinking, was he doing that so that people would just trust that it was a, a vaccine that had been like tested effect you know thoroughly because it was it wasn't it it, you're right it wasn't it was actually (laughs) um the health safety record they used to get the license was not actually for this anthrax vaccine which is abbreviated ava it was actually the the safety studies for another anthrax vaccine developed by merck that was totally different but apparently they were able to get it licensed despite that um, during this period of time. The anthrax vaccine is very controversial. I mean, we can get more into that later. It's uh, caused a lot of problems for a lot of veterans that received it. Well, let's talk about that briefly, because uh, it's really interesting parallel when you see, you know, this is another motive that the FBI tried to pin on Bruce Ivins, that he wanted to get his anthrax vaccine to be the one that was used and that's why he sent anthrax out i mean have you heard that theory oh yeah i know that's the fbi's theory but they ignored the people that were (laughs) about to lose everything on their anthrax vaccine business in early september 2001 and then who uh were able to renew their contract uh after the anthrax attacks took a great effect which is none other than emergent biosolutions or bioport to whom uh, Robert Cadlick uh, has those conflicts of interest, as I as I mentioned a little bit ago. And the rise of Bioport is part two of this series. And it is just, um, they are really one of the most scandalous companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies around. Well, they call themselves a life science company, right? Which is a PR term for it. <laughs> um, but, mm-hmm. you know, these guys were Bioport. Uh, is really not an American company. It's an American subsidiary of something called Portent International that also teamed up with DynCorp at the time to create DynePor. And in the late 90s, DynePor 
because of the this uh, biological weapons alarmism, they got an exclusive government contract to make smallpox vaccine, whereas Bioport got exclusive control and a monopoly over the anthrax vaccine in the late 90s. So, you know, their two are their sister companies, essentially, uh, Dyneport and Bioport. Uh, Dyneport, I don't believe exists anymore, but this was, you know, in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, Bioport uh, bought the only producer licensed factory for producing anthrax vaccine in the country. And um, they did that at a time when the Secretary of Defense under Clinton, William Cohen, had moved to make anthrax vaccine mandatory for all U.S. troops. And um, so essentially... And they, what year was this around? Um, 1998. Briefly mentioned the Gulf War syndrome uh, or, but you know, the the side effects or the, the, um, the problems with the... the earlier vaccine. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So Gulf War syndrome uh, explains this phenomenon uh, where veterans of the Gulf War suffered from a variety of neurological issues and, and other complications that were never explained. Right. Um, but later studies would link it to the adverse effects of this anthrax vaccine with no safety track record. Right. Um, but of course that was poo-pooed by the official task force that was hired to investigate it. The head of that task force was a guy named, um, a, a Nobel laureate and a very famous American microbiologist, uh, Josh, uh, Joshua Letterberg, who had very close ties to people like Patrick and other people in the Fort Detrick crew and had long been obsessed with um, the threat of bioterror in the U.S. But it's interesting that he uh, would be the person appointed to this because he um, was on the board of a company that had actually shipped anthrax at the behest of Donald Rumsfeld during the Reagan administration. Um, they'd shipped anthrax to Iraq. Yep. And that was used as the basis, you know, for uh, the claim that anthrax, uh, Iraq had anthrax, um, had anthrax and was going to use it as a biological weapon, right? So, you know, it, and that directly led to this use of the anthrax vaccine. So, you know, there, you could argue that's a conflict of interest in him determining any potential link between the things there. But Letterberg actually even admitted later that his um, task force into Gulf War syndrome didn't um, spend enough, quote, time and effort digging out the details um, about what had happened to these people. So that's very, um, there, there was really no investigation in it, and it was essentially called a cover up even by the government accountability office, which is part of the government. Right. Um, so anyway, oh, um, right. So, uh, that's why later on when this program for anthrax vac vaccinations was made mandatory, there were, um, soldiers, who uh, declined to get the vaccine, and a lot of them were court-martialed. At least one was threatened with being tied down to a gurney and injected against his will with the anthrax vaccine. Holy um, shit. Yeah, so a lot of weird stuff wow. going on. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff Jesus went on Christ. with the anthrax vaccine. Uh, this story is is so crazy. I don't want to get too wacky with it, but it's like it's almost like the Gulf War, the first Gulf War was like a total setup and it's on so many levels. I mean, like the whole, the satellite imagery that showed uh, Iraq about to, um, you know, send all these troops into Kuwait. Uh, there, there's all these different things about it that just make it seem like the whole thing was just like an experiment by the U.S. government. You know, the highway of death, uh, the, like this making the soldiers wear chemical weapons, like hazmat suits, like, and then making them all get injected with uh, an anthrax vaccine. I mean... It's just, it's like straight up like human guinea pig stuff. I mean, 
like to treat soldiers this way, it's horrifying. Before the Gulf War, there was the invasion of Panama. In the invasion of Panama, the U.S. was accused of using a bunch of experimental weapons that they later hoped to test, uh, that they later ended up using in, in the Gulf War. And so there were accusations made that the invasion of Panama was sort of like, you know, uh, using Panamanians that were being invaded as guinea pigs f- before they went and invaded Iraq using the same new technologies. So, I mean, it's very possible. And when you look at, you know, the details, who's, who stood to benefit the most from the anthrax attacks um, and things like that, it, it seems like, you know, it's very possible that um, some something even on that scale could have been orchestrated uh, for the, the benefit of some of these shady actors in the military and their private sector partners, as they like to call them. So tell me about how Cadillac got involved. He and, and William Patrick had some involvement in weapons inspecting and and actually like offering advice to the government about Iraq's weapons program and and hyping it up even though they knew they had firsthand knowledge that it wasn't yeah. real. I mean, that's just so fascinating because that's like a more direct proof of a blatant lie. You know, we talk about cherry picking intelligence or you know, um, or how the Bush administration massaged the propaganda, but this is like a direct example of someone who clearly lied with firsthand knowledge. I mean, that's that's to me more even more fascinating. All so right. go into that. Well, William Patrick, after giving this recommendation to the Pentagon that resulted in all these vaccinations, um, right? He also was the guy that debriefed the Soviet defector who was. Um, allegedly head of the uh, biowarfare program, the Soviet Union, a guy who whose Americanized name is Ken Alabek. And um, a lot of the stories that Ka- that Alabek came up with and, and told Patrick and, and others involved things like Iraq definitely has a biological weapons program. He actually said this in testimony before the 2003 invasion uh, Alabek did. And he ended up, a lot of his claims ended up being discredited later. He changed his story a lot. And eventually the LA Times, you know, did an expose about this Alabek guy. But anyway, the combination of what Alabek had said in his best-selling book on his claims called Biohazard, right? Um, a combination of that with, you know, um, how these anthrax um, samples had been shipped to the U.S., uh, from the U.S. to Iraq, to the Ministry of Education of Iraq, by the way, um, and things like that you know, was used as the basis for there must be a biological weapons program in Iraq and also claims from a, um, the, I believe, the son-in-law of Saddam Hussein defected to the U.S. and also, you know, um, <laughs> backed up these claims. And basically that was the basis alone for them saying that there was this biological weapons program in Iraq. And even after Cadlick went to Iraq in search of biological weapons three times in the 90s alone. Patrick only went the first time in 1994. And Cadlick then went... Under what authority? The UN? The UN, technically, but representing the US there, right? Um, But then Cadillac would go back twice more after the 2003 invasion, again, looking for the biological weapons program of Saddam Hussein, and he would never find it. And in congressional testimony, he said, we knew it was there, but proof, concrete evidence remained elusive, you know, and the the extent of his program was never uh, satisfactorily ascertained and stuff like this, right? I mean, that's how he talks about it. I mean, it's, it's just wild. So, I mean... These are the people that were convincing 
not just politicians and the president of the time and stuff that, you know, Saddam Hussein had biological weapons, but they, you know, did this to, in, in great effect to convince the American public of this too. Well before, um, you know, George W. Bush ever even came into office and actually their speeches of um of bill clinton you know and what like 1998 talking about how saddam hussein is you know developing biological weapons and he's starving the iraqi people even though those you know u.s sanctions at the time were helping do that to a great extent as well you know um but anyway um that's a separate point but um you know it's just really um really crazy all the things that were going on in this period of time and a lot of clinton's alarmism came from this book that was written by this journalist that was really cozy with william patrick um, named richard preston who wrote this book called the cobra event which is about this genetically engineered yep. bioweapon called brain pox that like makes people go crazy yep. sort of like zombie apocalypse type stuff anyway william patrick advised preston about brain pox and basically came up with that whole insane scenario that's in the book and allegedly freaked the crud out of uh, Bill Clinton. And then, and then Pat, and Patrick was also involved in Clodor's meetings with Clinton at the White House about the biological weapons threat, as was Joshua Letterberg and Jerome Hauer and a guy named Thomas Monath, who was uh, at the time the top, one of the top science advisors to CIA director George Tenet. Right. So these are the guys that are shaping this fearful view of um, biological weapons uh, for Bill Clinton that led him to create some um, several actually presidential directives that ended up setting up uh, the groundwork for what would become the strategic national stockpile that Robert Cadlick now controls. So it was really these guys that started to put those wheels in motion. And it wasn't until after, uh, I would say, after the 2001 anthrax attacks that Cadillac becomes one of the main figures guiding the development of this policy to where it is now. And now, of course, Cadillac holds that very office that he oversaw uh, the creation of, which the whole purpose, one of the main purposes of it is having complete control of this stockpile in the hands of a single man. Well, let's let's go into that in a second. I want you to go really deep into that. Um, but just going back to them as these influential individuals who managed to carry this sort of torch, if you will, of fear mongering about bioterror and the you know the, what the nation's response should be to it. It's almost like um, you know it, it's I, I really appreciate what you've done because you've like identified two people who weren't even on my radar. You know, I this whole time I'm thinking, well, maybe it's Woolsey. You know, who are these people that sort of carried this torch the longest? But it's not. You know, ultimately, it doesn't seem like it was someone like James Woolsey. You know, now he's on all about EMPs. That's what he's obsessed with right now. He's not even talking about pandemics anymore. <laughs> but it's these guys who are still deeply, deeply enmeshed in this whole world. I mean, it's like this is their entire career. I mean, they, this is, it's not just that they've consulted on this. It's like, they've literally made millions of dollars off it. I'm, I'm presuming, I don't know, you know, how rich they are, but um, I could be completely talking out of school there, but it seems like this is also what their entire careers revolve around as well. So t talk about, yeah. I mean, comment, if you want to comment on that, go ahead. But, but you were about to talk about, you know, what he's managed to do since all this, since the anthrax attacks. Right. Well, I think, you know, in terms of carrying the torch, the, the big move that happened was actually in 1994, um, you know, um, when Cadillac was doing this weapons inspector stuff. And there was this office, congressional office, the Office of Technology Assessment. 
or OTA that was shut down and it was replaced with this um, think tank called the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies, which was private and very tied into the Bush family and the CIA, right? Um, it's called, so it's abbreviated PIPS. And they basically took over the role of this con formerly congressional office that was defunded in 19 1994 called the OTA. And what that office was supposed to do was to inform Congress and create policies um, around issues of science and technology that as, as they relate to national security, right? So this was all moved from this public body into this private body that was set up by a guy named Michael Sweetnam, who used to be on... Um, George Bush's senior foreign intelligence advisory board, uh, a former CIA program monitor, and he was supposed to be profiling Osama bin Laden right before 9-11, right? Um, why he was at PIPS, by the way. <laughs> um, so anyway, a lot of the stuff that um, a lot of these policies that Cadlick um, and people before him ended up promoting uh, originally were drafted by PIPS. And PIPS is full of former military, former DARPA, former NASA, former CIA, former Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, military industrial complex companies. And I think it's really interesting that so many people have never heard of this think tank when it has such uh, huge influence over over policy on these issues and i but i think there's a reason uh and it's because they don't like to have a lot of light shown on them right um as is often the case of these sort of underbelly organizations that have a lot more control than they'd like you to think that they do right did this does this thing take have like a website that people can go do oh yeah okay yeah you can go there and, and look it up the potomac institute for policy studies people before cadillac and the people after, uh, or before Cadillac and then Cadillac himself, who were shaping this, this trajectory of policy, a lot of it first came from the people that were first at the OTA, which includes this Joshua Letterberg character um, and a lot of uh, people on the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and then, you know, that public office, even though it's stuffed with pharma insiders and people like Letterberg, it gets moved off to PIPs. But the policy ends up being the same, just less transparent, right? Um, so, um, in terms mm -hmm. of what Cadillac was doing, if you look at the people that were really involved with a lot of, um, drafting of the legislation that he was, you know, uh, creating and things like that, you see a lot of PIPs people pop up. Um, and you also see, um, something we'll get to later, which is when Cadillac created what is now known as the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Um, that's funded by a PIPs linked think tank called the Hudson Institute, and um, has a lot of uh, PIPS people on it, in addition to, you know, bipartisan people like Joe Lieberman, Donna Shalala on the Democrat side, and on the Republican side, people like uh, Tom Ridge. Isn't Cigar, Cigar on Jetty from the Hudson Institute? The guy who has that show, The Hill Rising? Yeah, he's associated with the okay. Hudson Institute, whose vice president is currently uh, Scooter Libby, who is um, oh, cool. <laughs> chief of staff, former chief of staff for Dick Cheney, uh, nicknamed Germ Boy because of his obsession with Dark Winter. <laughs> so that's who that guy. Uh, yeah, he's a Hudson Institute fellow. That's that's sad. Progressive TM, you know. <laughs> Let's talk about Bioport and emerging okay. biosolutions now, because I think that's an important part of the story, right? So PIPS is made in 19 sure, yeah. 1994. There's these weapons inspections. They can't find anything, but they these same people, Patrick Letterberg, uh, Jerome Hauer, people like that, you know, um, have President Clinton uh, 
really concerned about biological weapons and he issues off all these presidential directives and he makes the stockpile, right? Um, and then uh, within that same uh, context, William Cohen, Secretary of Defense, moves to make anthrax vaccination mandatory. And at, at the time that that was made mandatory, this company called Bioport, the newly made American subsidiary of Porton International, which, by the way, is the privatized arm, the, the arm of Porton Down that was privatized off in the 80s by Margaret Thatcher. Porton Down is like the, you know, the UK's version of Fort Detrick, right? Um, anyway, so Bioport is made at this period of time, um, and they buy the only factory that used to be state-owned by the state of Michigan, um, the only factory that's licensed to produce anthrax vaccine. But at the time they buy it, the factory is shut down because of uh, the CDC, I believe, um, found, or, it's, it's, or it might have been the FDA, um, found numerous safety violations and problems with quality control, right? Remember Gulf War Syndrome? People had issues that later were found to be linked to the anthrax vaccine. The factory where that was produced was shut down because of issues with quality control okay um meaning that the vaccine <laughs> were quote-unquote bad batches i mean this is in congressional testimony Jeez. too and this isn't something that like you know it's like anti-vaxxer so not only was whatever it you know this is like real real life problems with a vaccine that were injected into people and there was no accountability right it's just sad because it just shows how how much we shit on our own you know, people who serve in the military and the fact oh, that yeah. this would be uh, a this very is a damning indictment of that for just, sure. Just yeah. how untested this vaccine was and how rushed it was, how they basically used soldiers as guinea pigs. And then the fucking batches were bad that were made at the factories, like on top of that. I mean, it's just horrendous. Yeah. So anyway, Sorry, I'm just... um, <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. So anyway, what's what's even more scandalous is that Bioport gets this contract while the factory is still shut down and they're given all this money by the Pentagon that's supposed to go to renovations to get the factory up and running. Um, right. But w despite that, they're still even though the, the, the factory shut down, they're still producing vaccine and the government is paying them for the dosage and paying them for storage of each dose. Right. Um, then it later comes out that this company, instead of using it on renovations, squandered all the money on senior management bo bonuses, redecorating offices of its executive team, and the rest of the money just disappeared. This is according to Pentagon auditors. Um, by the way, um, one of the, the top investors of Bioport was the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman under Reagan, a guy named William Crow, who obviously had close ties to the Pentagon. So when it came out that all this money had been squandered, they basically, Bioport um, got the Pentagon to bail them out. And uh, this continued to happen for several years, you know, this cycle of, of uh, okay, we're going to give you money, fix the factory, and then bailouts while they're still producing vaccine they can't use, right? And the government's paying for it. I mean, just the biggest scam you can think of, right? In this period of time, in 2000, while they're, quote unquote, struggling to get their factory to um, be relicensed, they contract um, a company called Battelle Memorial Institute um, to handle Ooh. vaccine production 
for them beginning in 2001. And so um, Battelle hires 12 people it sends to this anthrax vaccine facility. Um, and, you know, Bioport and Battelle begin their um, rather interesting relationship that we can get into here in a little bit. What time was this? Like, was this mm-hmm. early 2001? I mean, because we're, you know, I we're believe it was late. It was, it was 2000. It was the year 2000. Okay, 2000. I believe it was in no- October, November in the year 2000. Correct. Fascinating how all these little elements are lining up, right? Like coming, yeah. coming together. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So anyway, um, uh, they make this deal with Patel, Patel, which is supposed to get their factory up and running faster, but it doesn't work out, right? And so there's still this scandal. And by August 2001, both Congress and the Pentagon publicly lose patience with Bioport. And they say um, that they're going to cancel the contract, essentially, um, unless they can reopen the factory and, and get it relicensed by the government quickly, get it up to speed, something they have not done. Um, and in mid-September, the Pentagon is supposed to release a report about how the Pentagon can acquire anthrax vaccine without Bioport. Okay, um, so this is August 2001. Um, of course, that report that was supposed to come out in mid-September from the Pentagon about cutting off Bioport for good, which, by the way, Bioport's only like income was from this anthrax vaccine. They didn't have another product. They were explicitly formed to buy this Um, factory that had a monopoly over the anthrax vaccine. Okay. So that would have put them out of business entirely. Um, Anyway, that report Mm. from the Pentagon was supposed to come out in mid September. It never comes out because of nine 11. Right. Um, And then of course, as we know now, um, the anthrax attacks followed not that long afterwards. And then the anthrax attacks created a panic, as we know now. And the Bioport facility was quickly relicensed, despite the fact that it had not made a lot of the required renovations that because of urgency, right? Um, because of the need for vaccines, because of the terrorists and, and the climate of fear at the time. And a lot of that push for reapproval came from Jerome Hauer, who at the time was national security advisor to uh, HHS, the secretary of HHS, who was Tommy Thompson. And um, Howard ended up uh, developing, uh, basically developing and then uh, occupying the precursor to the position that Robert Cadlick now holds, right? So Jerome Howard is another one of these characters that helped shape this uh, uh, Asper position that Cadlick holds today. It used to be um, the office of... Uh, uh, I can't remember, uh, like pan- uh, pandemic and or uh, preparedness and health or something like that. OPHP, I can't remember the exact name. Um, but then, and how we ended up occupying that um, after it was written into law um, by an act that was inspired by, you know, the anthrax attacks, right? So all very convenient. And by the mm-hmm. time um, Howard assumes that position, in uh, two th- in, be- in January two thousand two or the beginning of two thousand two, um, Bioport's factory is relicensed despite that issue. Um, in two thousand four, Bioport is reformed as Emergent Biosolutions, and in two thousand four, a month after Jerome Howard leaves HHS, he is added to Emergent Biosolutions board, where he remains today. Fascinating. Is this too much of a sidetrack to go into um, the position that Cadillac got? right after September 11th for Donald Rumsfeld? Yeah, well, I want to point oh, out sure. Jerome Howard and Robert Cadlick really quick. Jerome Howard was at Dark Winter um, at this exercise. He played the head of FEMA, 
right? Um, and he's also the guy on 9-11 that told mm-hmm. the people in the Bush administration to take the antibiotic Cipro to prevent anthrax infection. He's also the guy that on the day of 9-11 was head of, uh, was managing director of Kroll Inc., which was, you know, um, this intelli- you know, privatized intelligence linked outfit that was doing security for the World Trade Center. On the day of 9-11, Jerome did not, uh, Jerome Howard did not show up onto his office on that day. Um, right. So this is, um, you know, Jerome Howard's a very interesting character. After 9-11, also and before the anthrax attacks, Howard was one of these guys that was going on TV a lot, talking about how there's going to be a biological weapons attack um, and, and things like that. Right. So it's <laughs> important to point out Howard there. Yeah. Robert Cadlick, also at Dark Winter, um, actually the name Dark Winter for the exercise derives from one of these fake news clips made from the exercise um the second news clip features robert cadlick at the beginning and he says it's going to be a very dark winter for the united states and i think it's very disconcerting in his testimony today to congress his uh, cadlick's deputy um rick bright uh basically gave the same line. He said, it's, uh, you know, if we don't do what I say we need to do, this will be the quote, darkest winter in modern US history. Right? Um, very disconcerting to see uh, that reference. It's a I mean, sequel. It's it, a sequel. It, yeah, it's it, like it Die Hard. Like that. It's Die Harder. <laughs> well, like, the darkest winter rick right the darkest right it's, it's it's creepy honestly i mean i feel like that's a dog whistle for people like me you know to like freak me out i i really uh, but i don't you know i just thought the it's very odd to see that exact term being used by cadlick's deputy uh today you know in light of the coronavirus uh crisis just really really odd um to say the least yeah right and he's, but, is he being presented as a whistleblower? Yes. Because yes. It, that, so that's the deputy you're talking about that's being – so that's odd that his deputy that's blowing the whistle on him is the one using that terminology. That's interesting. Right. I just want well, to point that out. They used to be – they used to get along really well. They used to be colleagues. They're all part of the same swamp. But like I said earlier, what I yeah. think is going on is that they have, ally- they have allegiances to different – faces of this you know of of, you know the big pharma people that that feed off of biodefense right on some level that has to be what's going on i mean probably also explains it's a fight over the barda money rudy giuliani i was gonna say it probably explains on some level the fallout that even rudy giuliani had with jerome hauer oh it's very you know they were collaborating with biodefense preparedness as well i mean Mm -hmm. it was one of their big things but uh, but sorry. Continue with what you were you were on a good roll with this. Okay. Well, I don't remember where I was, <laughs> but, but it's okay. I was just talking about Howard, so people know that Howard's a really shady guy, right? Um, and then joins Emergent Biosolutions, a very shady uh, company, right? Emergent Biosolutions Bioport, right? So um, anyway, where does Cadillac yeah. fit into this? So um, in the late nineties, Cadillac gets uh, picked by a guy named Randy Larson. Um, to teach at the National War College, where William Patrick also teaches, okay? And William Patrick is a super close friend of uh, Patrick. Patrick died, by the way, in 2010. And in remembering Patrick, uh, Randy Larson wrote about how he will miss drinking martinis on uh, Patrick's porch, right? So they're definitely um, (laughs) buddies. Anyway, Randy Larson, um, not long after he hires Cadillac, joins this group called Answer, um, or the Answers Institute for Homeland, uh, Homeland Security, um, or maybe it's Homeland Studies. I'm 
so many acronyms. <laughs> um, so sometimes I, I, I mess them up. But anyway, ANSWER at the time uh, that Institute was founded and Randy Larson was made director of it was led by a woman named Dr. Uh, Ruth David, who used to be a top uh, science official at the CIA. Okay. Um, and this was during a time um, post-1997 when all of this focus within government um, and, you know, uh, government insiders and all of this stuff turned towards homeland security. And while in answer was a big part of this, you know, pushing for the need for a new department of homeland security and things like that. And actually in March, 2001, um, the legislation was introduced with answers involvement that basically set up um, what would become uh, DHS after 9-11, but that legislation was introduced in March 2001. In April 2001, Robert Cadlick writes a paper for the National War College that talks about the need to create that same agency um, how, and, and predicts a lot of policies that Cadlick would later oversee, like the expansion of the strategic national stockpile um, and things of that nature. So anyway, um, he and Randy Larson uh, were involved in Dark Winter. Like I said, Randy Larson as a co-author of the entire exercise was very involved in it. Okay. Um, on the day of 9-11, Randy Larson and Robert Cadlick together were supposed to start teaching a course at the National War College about um, homeland security specifically, including a, a major focus on biological weapons and like a three-month research project on dark winter itself. Of course, on the day of 9-11, uh, that doesn't happen because of those events. And Cadillac is taken uh, to the Pentagon where he becomes an advisor to Donald Rumsfeld's office on matters of biological weapons. Of course, this is in the weeks prior to the 2001 anthrax attacks. And of course, the source of those attacks was quickly determined to have come from a U.S. military lab. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because, um, all three of the people that we've been talking about, I mean, that you just threw Jerome Howard into the mix as well. These people all had different positions advising the Bush administration in different ways. Very strategic, how they're all set up in just the right yeah. places. Power on 9-11 was conveniently national security advisor to Tommy Thompson of HHS. While he was also in charge of Kroll Inc., mm -hmm. he was also vice president of SAIC, which we'll get to in a little bit, that employed Patrick as a consultant and had done this study on sending anthrax through the mail um, just a few years prior. Um, it, you know, and, and there's some, you know, other connections there too, that I'm, I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. Do you want to get into how Patrick was actually, um, involved in the Amerithrax investigation for the FBI? Yeah, um, sure. So, um, of course the investigation into, um, the Amerithrax case, the 2001 anthrax attack starts and a lot of missteps are made. Um, right. So for example, it was determined pretty quickly that the anthrax used in the attacks was the Ames strain, which was like exclusive to the U S military. And, um, by quote unquote mistake, the entire database about the AIM strain is ordered, uh, the FBI orders it destroyed um, and calls up the University of Iowa and they, they destroy it, which of course um, greatly complicates their ability to determine where it came from. Um, early on in the investigation, according to people that had heard this from FBI agents, um, a couple of journalists, some of whom I've, I've talked to before, um, have said that they heard early on that uh, William Patrick was actually a suspect in the anthrax attacks, but then he did a polygraph test and then he apparently 
passed and then was added to um, the inner, supposedly, you know, quote unquote, inner circle of technical advisors to the Amerithrax investigation. Even though at the time he was added, his uh, protege, um, who he, with whom he enjoyed a father son type relationship, Stephen Hatfill, was one of the suspects. Oh, yeah, was one of the top suspects um, in the anthrax attacks and remained so for years. But there's Patrick on the board of technical advisors. And what's interesting about this polygraph test claim, for anyone that's ever looked into the case of the 9-11 high fivers who were sometimes, you know, more often or not called the the dancing Israelis. In, in the case of those individuals, they were given polygraph tests multiple times until they passed. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I wonder... Um, if Patrick's polygraph test, because of his influence in government and his connections to several very powerful uh, intelligence and military intelligence contractors, may have given him that same sort of benefit of the doubt approach that was employed by these other people in the aftermath of of 9-11. Because the FBI, you know, did those same polygraphs for those, um, you know, citizens of Israel that were involved in some shady activity, right? So, um, uh that's a question I have, but of course, um, I don't really know how to get an answer to that. But when you look at what else Patrick was doing prior to the 2001 anthrax attacks and the fact that he was an initial suspect, um, as was Ken Alabeck, who I mentioned earlier, you know, it starts to uh, seem like it's very possible um, that that polygraph may have been, you know, may have, you know, been guided along or what have you. Um, but the fact that someone like Patrick was on the, you know, involved in the investigation itself is very um, disconcerting, as is the fact that someone like Robert Cadlick was also very involved and was actually the guy um, tasked by Paul Wolfowitz to try and, you know, firm up evidence of whether bentonite was actually in the anthrax or not. And of course, bentonite was supposed to be the smoking gun that Saddam Hussein in Iraq had been behind the anthrax attacks. Of course, there was no bentonite ever found in any sample. There was just like this haphazard claim made by this Fort Detrick scientist saying, well, it looks like there might be some additive that looks sort of like bentonite. And by the way, bentonite is used to make <laughs> this cousin of anthrax by Iraq, right? But what and Paul Wolfowitz apparently like lost his shit and totally freaked out and was like, you know, we got him, you know? I wanted to just stop you there for a second because I don't think we mentioned to people that in this episode, at least, we did in your podcast, but one of the integral parts of the Operation Dark Winter storyline was that um, these terrorists uh, from the Middle East might have gotten smallpox from a Soviet defector. So it's just fascinating that this is, there's a real person involved in this, Ken Alibic, who's actually pinpointed as a potential suspect after the actual attacks. And he oh, is yeah. an alleged Soviet defector. Yeah. I mean, it just can't get any stranger how much real life imitates these fictional scenarios that <laughs> they were, some of these people and their colleagues were involved in writing. I mean, it's just absolutely bizarre. Yeah, it's it's so strange. Very true. So this guy Wright said that uh, this this cousin of anthrax is is made using bentonite in Iraq. What he didn't say is that that cousin of anthrax it's non-lethal, it's harmless. It's called BT. It's widely used in agriculture as an insecticide. It's even used in organic gardening today. It's a really low cost pesticide or insecticide that's found like around the world and widely used. Right. So it has nothing to do with making biological weapons. Um, and as I said earlier, bentonite wasn't even found in the frickin 
um, in the anthrax using the attacks. That was literally just like something this guy made up. And Paul Wolfowitz was like, we gotta, we gotta prove it. And at the same time, why Cadillac's advising these guys on WMDs, chemical and biological weapons, um, Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz prepare notes that have actually come out in the years since that you can read talking about in 2001, when Cadillac was still there and advising this stuff, uh, talking about how to initiate hostilities with Iraq. And it involved focusing on WMDs, starting uh, conflicts over UN weapons inspections. Remember, Cadillac used to be a UN weapons inspector. Um, and linking Saddam Hussein to the anthrax attacks. We're all on that list of how to start war with Iraq made in oh, wow. November 2001. Wow. I've never heard of that document it, i linked to it in the, pretty, in the i linked to it in the in the article i mean it's, so, mm-hmm. it's not shocking but that's that's just interesting to know that exists well it's just forgotten now you know so much of this history just yeah. like no one knows about it anymore unless you know you reinvestigate it even for people that i'm sure investigated at at the time you know so much has happened since then and the news cycle these days is so crazy that it's easy to to forget that sort of stuff you know mm-hmm well, anyway, um, Cadlick, after all of this, right, um, he ends up joining the Homeland Security Council that's headed uh, by, um, well, that uh, is a complement sort of to the Department of Homeland Security after it's made. The Homeland Security Council directly advises the White House on bioweapon stuff. Um, well, that, well, that's what um, that's what Cadlick was doing. He was head of the bioweapon biodefense section of that council that was advising the Bush administration. Um, from 2002 to 2005. Fascinating. So do you want to talk about what Patrick did at Battelle? It, it, it would make sense Definitely. to go over um, the rest of what happened with um, with the anthrax attacks, right? Um, and, and specifically Patrick, yeah. because William Patrick, or William C. Patrick III, is, is a guy that a lot of people <laughs> don't know about, even, you know, but people really should know about this guy because he is, um, even if you read, there's two New York times profiles on him. There's one that's published in 1998. There's another profile on his friendship with Ken Alabeck and the New Yorker also 1998. And then there's his, his obituary, um, from 2010 in the New York times. And if you just read those alone, I mean, it is in my opinion, impossible to not come away with the impression that this guy was completely insane. Just like, totally out of his mind <laughs> i mean he had like a skull and crossbones i thought you were gonna Grim say Reaper. like deep state. no 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 he's in, <laughs> this guy was like literally mental um he was obsessed with death and even even the obituaries say this um you know about him like talking about his legacy you know just talks about how he like loved death like his business cards were all black they had skull and crossbones on them and the grim reaper you know, and he's supposed to be a consultancy, <laughs> a consultant for biodefense, right? But, like, I don't know. It's just weird to put all that stuff. I mean, because he was an old guy in the 90s. He was already, like, in his 70s, uh, you know, during this period of time mm-hmm. we're talking about. And, you know, he was like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, cover my business cards with symbols of death and go around and hand those out to people in government. I mean, it's just weird. But anyway, he also, you know, he and Ken Alabak in this, this New Yorker profile, they're sitting on Patrick's porch and they're looking down at Frederick, Maryland, which is like this area where his house was, you know, his house was on a hill overlooking Frederick, Maryland, where he lived. 
And he was like, and then he asked Ken Alabak like offhandedly, what do you, so if you were, if we were, if you were going to attack Frederick today, Ken, what would you use? And then Ken Alabak's like anthrax mixed with Ebola or something like that. Like, <laughs> what? I know. How do you like not read this and say these people are out of their mind crazy? Because they really are. And then I would, you know, direct people to even just the obituary of William C. Patrick the third in the New York Times, you scroll down to the last paragraph, it says something like, he expressed no regrets about his work, uh, his research um, in murdering animals and finding new ways to produce death. Like it says he was comfortable with that is the term used. He's comfortable with having spent his life doing that. I mean, just a really creepy guy. Um, that was friends with Robert Cadlick and Randy Larson and advising the president and like also advised Jerome Howard when Jerome Howard was at the office of emergency management of New York and, and all of that stuff. Um, you know, that's like the category of people we're dealing with here. Jerome Howard, by the way, in a New York times profile on him says he spends his whole day, like, imagining horrible ways for people to die right um so like this is the category of people we're talking about here i mean literal psychos who are in control of this policy um but anyway um as i mentioned earlier stephen hatfill was this guy that was basically patrick's protege they were called like father and son they traveled together all the time um if patrick uh, couldn't attend a conference. He'd stand Hatfill in his place. He taught Hatfill, you know, all of the stuff uh, that he knew because he wanted Hatfill to like carry on his work. Right. Is, is the way this was phrased. So one of the wow. things uh, were the, right. So one of the places they would travel together is this company um, called SAIC, the scientific applications. Um, uh, I forget the I I'm sorry. SAIC. Sorry, too many. Seriously, if you read my yeah, report, you'll mostly known as an acronym. It's right. Funny. I know. Well, when you if, you if for people listening that read my report, you will see how many acronyms are there. <laughs> so forgive me. Yeah, There's no, it's hard to remember all this stuff. <sighs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, well, I mean, interviews on these reports, you know, are like tests. Sometimes <laughs> you have to like remember everything. So Patrick um, uh, and Hatfield would travel. Uh, Hatfield would actually drive Patrick to his consulting job at SAIC. And um, because of their close relationship and Patrick's connection connection to SAIC, he gets Hatfield hired there. And then a year after that is when Jerome Howard becomes a vice president. Okay. And so um, in 1999, when Howard's there and Hatfield's there, Hatfield um, offers Patrick, um, a, commissions Patrick specifically um, f- on behalf of SAIC to develop a study for describing, quote, a fictional terrorist attack in which an envelope containing weapons-grade anthrax is opened in an office, okay? And that report oh. also describes in detail uh, the danger of anthrax spores spreading through the air and the requirements for de- decontamination after those attacks, as well as exactly how many grams of anthrax you would have to place in a standard business envelope to conduct an attack like this, right? Um, so Patrick was studying huh. this, and I know, weird, right? He was studying this in, in uh, very deep uh, detail, Um and was commissioned by by Hatfield to do this. And Hatfield's commissioning of this study was one of the reasons, allegedly, why he was such a uh, subject of, uh, you know, interest by the FBI for a period of time. But it's interesting that Patrick was so quickly cleared of suspicion, but Hatfield was not. 
um, for their involvement in that same um, same event, right? Well, just really quickly, wanted to wanted to comment on the on Hatfield is that the whole time, you know, I feel like a lot of the anthrax people who have done investigative journalism on anthrax have sort of taken the Hatfield story at face value that he was completely railroaded, that it was completely unfair that the FBI didn't, you know, they couldn't pin on anybody. So they were just trying to frame him. But it really turns out that if you really look at every, all the evidence, especially what you've laid out and, you know, other stuff that I've read in the last several years, that Stephen Hatfield does have a lot of suspicious things surrounding him. Right. And I, it makes sense. I mean, I'm not trying to give the FBI any pass because obviously there was a shitload of corruption on that end as well. But I can understand why people in the FBI might have been really suspicious of him. Yeah. Now knowing what I know. So. Hatfield was also, he's from South Africa and he was fighting in, in that civil war um, in South Africa that was going on at the time. And there was a really suspicious, uh, suspicious outbreak of anthrax among um, African guerrillas. And he was part of the opposing army at the time. So that was another like weird thing about Hatfield's past that sort of raised some eyebrows apparently. But anyway, I'm talking about Patrick, right? Um, And in the study he was doing at SAIC that would be eerily repeated with the anthrax attacks. Um, At the same time, Patrick was also involved in another project that was being run by Battelle Memorial Institute, which remember teamed up with Bioport, right? Um, So anyway, um, Battelle had begun this study before the SAIC study. It was in uh, 1997. They were clandestine classified plans by the Pentagon to genetically engineer a more potent variety of anthrax. And the reason they wanted to do this allegedly was because a group of Russian scientists published a study in the British journal Vaccine about how a genetically engineered strain of anthrax resisted the standard anthrax vaccine in animal studies. So what they wanted to do was to see if the anthrax vaccine used in the U.S. and made by Bioport was effective against this new strain that was being developed by Battelle. And this was being done at Battelle's facility in West Jefferson, Ohio, or the West Jefferson facility, and it was known as uh, Project Jefferson, okay? At the same time, I don't include this in my report, but at the, in the same time frame, the CIA was also experimenting with anthrax and something that was called uh, Operation Clear Vision. Um, and I believe there was also an effort to create a, a covert uh, bioweapons facility in Nevada involving anthrax, but they claimed that it didn't use actual anthrax there um but some people have uh doubted that given you know everything else that was going on at the time and what clear vision hoped to do was reconstruct a quote-unquote germ bomb uh from for delivering anthrax that had been based on the description of ken alibek who at the time was Battelle's program manager for bioweapons and biodefense and was involved in this West Jefferson facilities genetic engineering of anthrax uh, at the time. Because in that absolutely I know, isn't it? And in this New Yorker article from 1998 that I mentioned earlier where Patrick and Ken Alibek are talking about how like, you know, just showing how like completely insane they are. And and William Patrick is like, Alibek's one of my best friends and all this stuff, you know? Um, (laughs) That article also says that Alibek and Patrick are working together on some project involving anthrax at the time. And at that time, you know, when this project is going on and Ken Alibek is the program manager, um, 
Patrick is also a consultant to not just SAIC, but Battelle. And the project they're working on with this genetically modified uh, anthrax involves the AIM strain of anthrax. Okay. So it's all very, very suspicious, especially when you consider that the FBI's supposed smoking gun on Bruce Ivins was the fact that Ivins had this flask um, in his lab that they determined was the parent strain of the anthrax used in the attacks, right? But it wasn't actually... NAS totally debunked. <laughs> yeah, right. Because a lot of people had access to that flask. It wasn't just Ivins. Like 400 people had access to it. But it later came out that that flask, uh, a, a, a portion of the contents of that flask had been sent by Ivins to Battelle's West Jefferson, Ohio facility before the anthrax attacks, which is um, very huh. interesting as well. So apparently Battelle's doing these experiments on anthrax for the Pentagon. Um, and it comes from the specific flask that's determined to be the parent strain of those using the attacks. There was also an analysis done on the water that was used to create the anthrax powder using the attacks. And it was determined that it, based on what it contained, it could only have been, uh, the anthrax could have only been made in the Northeastern U.S., ostensibly ruling out military labs like a Dugway, Proving Ground in, in Utah, among other ones, right? This is all very interesting what you're saying, because this is what people like Merrill Nass and um, even Matt DeHart, uh, the information that he relayed to me is that this, you know, appears to have have some kind of trail that leads it back to a private institution that was, I mean, his direct accusation is that it was a CIA contracted institution, um, but just a, pri it wasn't a military, it wasn't from Fort Dietrich, like that maybe we've been looking Tell. in the wrong place potentially. Mm -hmm. But tell contracts for both the military and the CIA. Right. So they're a contractor to both the military yes, and does, to yeah. intelligence. And what's interesting also is that Battelle, um, one of their roles, because Battelle also oversees a lot of the national laboratories in the U.S., they also control uh, the flow of anthrax essentially through that system um, and have control over who can access uh, anthrax and who cannot which is um, pretty interesting. But anyway, that analysis of the water I talked about, about it being only the Northeast US, um, follow-up analyses of that initial analysis uh, narrowed down the only possible sources of where that anthrax could have been made to three places, Fort Detrick, um, this government lab at the University of Scranton, because there was one researcher that did uh, military-funded stuff there, and the third being Battelle's West Jefferson, Ohio facility. And actually, Department of Justice uh, attorneys, after Ivins um, was accused of this and committed, quote-unquote, suicide and, and all of that stuff, um, the Department of Justice had, like, this huge amount of infighting among its own attorneys, with some of them actually claiming that the FBI... Um, failed to properly investigate a, quote, private laboratory in Ohio that could have been involved in the attacks, right? That's very, very fascinating. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. there's got, there had to have been a lot of infighting going on at the FBI in general because we already know, um, I forgot his name. Richard what, what's Lambert. What's the guy's name of the guy who acted? Richard Lambert. He was the guy who was fixated on Hatfield, according to another book, that I read a, a few years ago. I forgot the name of this book, but it actually tries to paint Lambert as like a bad guy who was tr the one trying to railroad Hatfield. 
But I mean, just the fact that he sued the Justice Department, he said that the information was being stovepiped to make it look like Ivan's was guilty. Right. Clearly, there's probably several different factions, but that is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea that that discussion existed. And I think that that's, you know, something that we need to consider is that this right. didn't come from, a, it might have not have come from a military lab at all. Right. I, I If Meryl Nass, someone who used to know Bruce Ivins would, would say that, then I think we need to take her seriously and look at all these pieces. Well, a lot of people that knew Bruce Ivins said he didn't do it. And there was actually one guy. So um, there were considered, he, he was um, Richard Spurzel, I think his name was. Um, and he's considered to be one of the top anthrax experts in the whole country. Right. And he said um, publicly, like even wrote this in the Wall Street Journal, there is no way one man did this attack. It, and it couldn't have been Ivan's because it needed to have been one of the top anthrax experts in the country. There's only like five of them and I'm one of them. Right. So <laughs> in that category, one of the other individuals in that top five is William Patrick because William Patrick hold, oh. held five classified patents for weaponizing anthrax. He was the top anthrax expert in the country period. Interesting. And wasn't he also, or was it him or Cadillac? I might be getting them him confused. That was theorizing that someone could just make anthrax by ordering stuff off the internet now. Oh, they both and said weaponize that. that. Like, <laughs> they both yeah. said so that. Yeah. is he is he projecting there? Is he doing that in I his own so. house? Anyone with a thousand dollars and a garage yeah. can make anthrax and you know kill everyone on the subway of New York and stuff like that. And you know these doomsday predictions. It's it's just really uh wild but anyway so to top it all off on how shady what Battelle was doing and saic was doing right um you have the fact that Battelle was in ties with bioport which stood to lose everything but then ended up gaining it back in more after the anthrax attacks right because not only did bioport get its factory relicense and get its contract with the pentagon um reinstated it was actually expanded as part of this national stockpile um to become even bigger right um because they needed anthrax for mail workers and policemen and firefighters and civilians right so bioport made this huge killing off of it um and they were tied up with battelle right so it's all very um Oh, very interesting when you when you look at all of this stuff together and the fact that the FBI investigation was just, um, you know, cover up after cover up as, you know, Richard Lambert, who was the lead investigator on the case for like seven years, uh, said after, you know, after like seven years, he resigned. Um, and then the case wrapped up a couple years later um, or not long after, you know, blaming Bruce Ivins. Yeah. And how could you not? just on a surface level, see all this stuff and say, well, there was an obvious conflict of interest for the FBI not being willing to look at a, co a company like Battelle because there's literal top level government officials who are like advising the president and oh, yeah. Donald Rumsfeld who like have financial ties to these companies. And, you know, it's just like, so just that alone is enough reason to say that the, you know, the anthrax investigation should be redone. So I feel like that's a Easily. new yeah. element a new element that you've really done a great job of really emphasizing here in your piece that um, people need to take very seriously because even if you don't think there's anything nefarious, even if you don't think the neocons had anything to do with this, it's just really corrupt. I mean, on its face. So, but I, I mean, I, I do think the neocons probably had something to do with it. So I think it goes much darker than that, but 
Hopefully this will catch the attention of people who are afraid to touch more of the deeper conspiratorial angles of this. I guess is what I'm saying. Right, right. Hopefully so. But it's worth pointing out, because um, I don't have a lot of time left, but um, I, I do just want to point out that after all of this, right, um, Cadlick, you know, he goes on the Homeland Security Council, he gets involved with, you know, Senator Richard Burr, um, and ends up writing a lot of legislation related to biodefense and stuff like this. He funds this by... Uh, creates this bipartisan commission on biodefense which was you know first this blue ribbon panel he basically um even when he's not in the public sector you know orchestrates a lot of these policy changes resulting in his own policy and this is why it's significant too that a lot of the times while he was writing this stuff he was also when he was in the private sector and also involved in a lot of this this legislative stuff he was you know doing a lot of consulting for a lot of these same companies like uh, emergent bio solutions um why he also you know co-founded a company with the guy that founded bioport the precursor to um, uh, emergent bio solutions this guy named fuad el hebri um which was also um Involved with another ex-HHS official named uh, Craig Vanderwagen, who was the first assistant secretary for preparedness and response after the legislation that Cadillac basically wrote was passed and created that position, right? So it's like all a very tight-knit little group. But also during this period of time, Robert Cadillac was very involved in consulting not just pharmaceutical companies and tied up with that side of things, but was also very close to companies backed uh, companies linked to, uh, you know, military intelligence or DARPA, uh, and also the NSA um, and the CIA um, and, and things like that. And actually, this former CIA officer who set up a consulting firm retained Cadillac as a consultant to his consulting firm, right? And um, anyway, so this guy was quoted as, as saying, everybody loves Dr. Bob, talking about Bob Cadillac, right? It, Robert Cadillac and calls him like a national treasure. So like this guy is really loved by like all these spooks and ex-spooks, right? Um, which is why it's really interesting. And I didn't put this in the report. This will be a little more in part four, Um that since he became, you know, this position under, uh, became, you know, this assistant secretary at HHS under Trump, he really developed um, very close ties between HHS and DARPA, um, who are now together, that office that Cadillac runs in DARPA are now co-funding together a lot of the same initiatives. Um, and also a lot of money was given to companies that Cadillac used to consult, unsurprisingly, in recent years, like Emergent Biosolutions got like a huge amount of money. And of course, they Emergent Biosolutions is developing a bunch of different cures, quote unquote, cures for coronavirus. I don't know if you want to trust them after knowing what they did with the anthrax vaccine. By the way, Emergent Biosolutions not only still has a monopoly over anthrax vaccine, but they have they eventually acquired the uh, a monopoly over smallpox vaccine and Narcan, which is has a direct relation to the opioid uh, epidemic in the u.s right so this is a very um very suspect company and they stand to gain a lot from coronavirus and they have gotten a ton of money from cadillac's office in barda in recent years also for coronavirus as well right um but it's definitely um a very troubling rise to power and the fact that you know cadillac is so deeply intertwined with these elements of intelligence makes it i think very disturbing that he was the guy that led this crimson contagion um exercise which would be the next part of my series um which Cadillac led, and it was it took place last year between January and August. Um, it involved twelve states, 
In the U.S., it involved 19 different federal agencies and a bunch of private sector companies, including several that have ties to PIPs and several pharmaceutical companies that Cadillac used to consult, and including um, another company that's set to uh, be one of these contacts uh, contact tracing software companies uh, all participate in this exercise last year, which was based around a fictional simulation that Cadillac created that involved a pandemic uh, originating in China and spreading to the U.S. and globally. Um, and there's a lot of overlap um, between that exercise and what we're seeing today. And so it's worth pointing out, too that um, the intelligence community and also Cadillac's good buddy, Richard Burr, um, apparently had foreknowledge about coronavirus and the extent of, of the crisis. Richard Burr, for example, uh, accused of insider trading before coronavirus dumping a bunch of stocks while he said everything was fine. Of course, the intelligence community to which Cadillac is close was saying, uh, apparently knew as early as last November that coronavirus could be a quote unquote cataclysmic event. And, you know, uh, none of the preparations that Cadillac had identified in Crimson Contagion, you know, like the lack of surge capacity and the lack of mass and all of that, nothing was done. Right. But they're, you know, the same. Uh, but that's actors. all China's fault. Of course, right? <laughs> oh, man. Um, but anyway, um, the same actors that have benefited time and again from these types of crises, uh, you know, these pharmaceutical companies connected to the right people, you know, are the same. It's the same actors benefiting all over again. Uh, even it's just very, um, very insidious, frankly. But like I said, now what we're seeing play out now with Cadillac and his deputy is this this infighting. And so I think a lot of the corruption and the dirty laundry, hopefully a lot more of it will come out in the wash as the, as these two sides, you know, battle it out with their respective frontmen. Um, but you know, what I try and do in my articles show the deeper story of the people who are really guiding these decisions and how it's developed over time and what's really going on here. Well, yeah. And you've done a beautiful job at doing that. You've, you've brought up Bill Gates very little during this conversation. I mean, but he does play a role here in a completely different way than um, some of these people do. You know, we can't completely poo-poo the, the, the fact that everybody wants to talk about Bill Gates because he, he a lot of the stuff he was involved in is super creepy. Oh, yeah. Predicting so these creep. pandemics, <laughs> you know, changing yeah. his whole career from being a Microsoft, you know, board member to being like a, the pandemic dude. Right. You know, yeah. like that's his thing now. I mean, it's just strange that that's his obsession. Well, the thing about Event 201 is that everyone's focusing on the Gates, uh, Bill Gates, like involvement, connection with that through his foundation and all of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it wasn't the Gates Foundation wasn't the only sponsor of that event. As I said earlier, there was also the John Hopkins Center for Health Security. And then there was the World Economic Forum. Right. So like a lot of uh, focus has been disproportionately placed on Gates as opposed to the other three people. And the group that I'm talking about in relation to Cadillac is directly tied into the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, whose longtime national security advisor has been Randy Larson, you know, um, one of Cadillac's good buddies who helped co-write Dark Winter. And Thomas Inglesby, who leads that center, co-wrote Dark Winter as well. And the previous director uh, to that center that preceded Inglesby and has basically been around Inglesby that, you know, they've done a ton of stuff together over the years is a woman named Tara O'Toole who um, became, you know, was a biodefense official in the Obama administration. And now she works for the CIA at NQTEL. 
right? Um, so these are, you know, I definitely think those people mm-hmm. warrant just as much investigation as, as Bill Gates because they're, you know, uh, equally involved um, with the types of narratives. And actually, it was O'Toole and the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security that um, did a lot of simulations between Dark Winter and, and Event 201 that are also very creepy and deserve to be looked at. These include Atlantic Storm in 2005, uh, Clade X in uh, 2018, uh, all are very uh, disturbing when you look at them, honestly. Um, but of course, Event 201 was especially prescient because it involved a coronavirus pandemic, right, um, last um, October. So um, definitely, um, definitely interesting. But I think, you know, the disproportionate focus on Gates just takes away from the other faction that is clearly present and equally dangerous, right? So I definitely think that we need to be talking about um, all of these corrupt actors, not just the ones that are, you know, easiest to demonize. There's a lot of people like Robert Cadlick, for example, that have sort of slipped through the cracks, but need to be, you know, outed, I think, as well. Well, yeah, and I think that's part of why your podcast's name is so good, Unlimited Hangout, <laughs> because you swing the sword very broadly, you know, instead of, you know, like a lot of this... I mean, everything just seems very controlled these days. You know, a lot of this, a lot of the conspiracy stuff, a lot of the the challenging narratives against the establishment we see just fall into a very similar framework where, you know, a lot of it absolves Trump or it talks about the deep state in a very oversimplified way, but you're not doing that. And I think uh, that's why more people need to pay attention to your work. Um, it's invaluable. I've been doing research on anthrax for almost 10 years and you've taught me things and found things that you know, I haven't found in my 10 years of researching it. So, and, and so I really appreciate what you're doing. And if there's anything else you want to say about what people should take away from your new series and what's to come with, you know, if you have any more entries in the series, um, or if we didn't get to cover anything, you know, feel free to say it now. Um, cause I know you probably need to go. I have, um, uh, part four will be coming out hopefully soon ish. And that's going to be about Cadlick's, uh, what he's been doing at HHS, uh, since, uh, he, you know, joined it under Trump and, uh, basically a detailed analysis of the crimson contagion, uh, simulation that I sort of just briefly touched on. And after that, I hope to do an expose of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, uh, Thomas Inglesby and Tara O'Toole and tie them in here as well. Because at Dark Winter, you saw there were a lot of different factions. A lot of them came from that answer group, um, that I, that I mentioned. A lot of them also came from the nuclear threat initiative, um, which is also tied up with this Joshua Letterberg guy and is sort of a different thread, right? And so a lot of these groups all meet at Dark Winter, but Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security is another one of these groups that was there and very involved in Dark Winter that continued to be involved with a lot of these, um, you know, shady behind closed doors, biodefense policies, right? Um, and these simulations in the years that followed and are definitely very deeply tied to intelligence as well, as you can see by Tara O'Toole's current employment by the CIA itself, right? Um, And she, in the past several years, has been very interested in this contact tracing technology while she's been at NQTEL um, in the the use of surveillance for quote-unquote healthcare purposes, right? So definitely someone Mm. worth looking at um, when we um, 
consider, you know, something that I've reported on recently, like this National Security Commission on AI, where you see intelligence, NQTEL, the military, and Silicon Valley all come together um, and then create this roadmap of what needs to be done in the U.S. to facilitate the widespread adoption of AI that is now coming to fruition under coronavirus. I think it's all part of the same. um, I think there's definitely connections uh, between stuff like O'Toole was planning about and talking about for NQTEL a couple years ago. Um, the recommendations of that uh, um, commission, which, you know, has two uh, CEOs of one former CEO of NQTEL and the current CEO of NQTEL are on that commission, you know, laying out this roadmap for surveillance. And now that's being, you know, sort of foisted upon us as necessary because of the coronavirus crisis, right? So all very convenient. So I'll be exposing that in the last part of my series, um, hopefully out soon. But I am also doing a book on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. So it may take me a little longer. We'll see um, how how things pan out. Um, but with that being said, um, you know, the, my main takeaway is what I said earlier on, you know, to keep it short and sweet, just that the, the corruption, um, related to this whole, um, event is, is clearly bipartisan and it really needs to stop being about, you know, this one bad guy or that bad guy. We need to start looking at, you know, this, this whole system of, of interconnected bad guys, right. (laughs) And how they're on, you know, have infested both parties and, um, and, you know, uh, it's just very, um, very damaging um, their policies and, and the, you know, the stranglehold over a lot of these policies, um, you know, that they have this stranglehold over a lot of these policies. It's just, um, you know, very important to sort of, you know, air this out. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I think you bring up something really important. And I don't think most people see things this way, but I've increasingly seen things way over the last several years is that there does appear to be some kind of factional war that's just spilling over onto the surface, you know, that's more evident every day that you look at sort of what's happening, you know, and it's coming out after the response to COVID-19. It's coming out all these different ways. You see Russiagate, a certain faction of the national security state going after this sort of weird, you know, Trump, pro-Trump faction that has their own severe problems, yet they're sort of presented as being heroic because they're being targeted by a faction of the national security state. So I think, I mean, that's an important to remember is that n- neither side of this is necessarily good or heroic. You know, I mean, he, like Michael Flynn, for example, he did, did horrible things in Afghanistan. He's a, you know, a, a, arguably a war criminal. Um, you know, it, so you can't look at all these things through rose colored glasses or just in, in these narrow ways. Um, and I guess that's all. I'm just totally ranting now. But um, but thank you so much, Whitney, for uh, for coming on Media Roots Radio again. And this is a very enlightening conversation and i think our um audience will like it quite a lot and uh and i recommend everybody go back and read your series in its entirety so far um part one through three which you can find all of them on the last american vagabond's website right right the last american vagabond.com is where they're all being published right now what is your twitter handle underscore whitney webb well thank you so much whitney Um, it was a pleasure to talk to you and uh let's do it again All right. Sounds good. Thanks a ton, Robbie. Thanks. Hi, it's Robbie again. If you liked what you heard on today's episode of Media Roots Radio, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you now get access to a bonus episode that's exclusive to patrons only. And if you donate $20 a month, you get access to unlimited download and viewing codes for my documentary series, 
a very heavy agenda. Thanks for listening to Media Roots Radio. And if you are already a supporter of ours on Patreon, thank you. Take care.